this morning we're going to study the church of Pergamos, and so Revelation chapter 2, let me just remind you that as we get into Revelation, Jesus Christ himself is, is giving instruction for the, for the Apostle John to write seven letters to seven specific churches in Asia Minor. And, and really, you could say, you know, you could loosely say that these are the epistles of Jesus Christ. I mean, they are from Christ himself to seven specific churches. I know that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, but God specifically called out seven churches in Asia Minor uh, to, to have specific instruction from him. And what we've talked about is each of these seven churches not only are historical churches, but they also paint a picture for us of all of church history. As a matter of fact, when you study these seven churches, you will see church history from the time of the apostles or the death of the apostles all the way to the rapture of the church. And so God gives us a, an overview or a snapshot of all of church history through these seven churches. We've studied the church at Ephesus, and, and that rep represents the time period from 90 to 200 A.D., uh, early in the church history, and Christ calls out that church to correction because they had left their first love. And I know no church or, or Christians in this room have ever done that, but, but that church got called out because they left their first love, which was the Lord Jesus Christ. They, they had turned their back, and, and they were doing a lot of positive things when you study the church at Ephesus, and yet the Lord called them to repentance. And then we studied the, the church at Smyrna, and we saw that this, this church, not only historically, but even what it represents in church history, it, it experienced tremendous suffering. And, and the charge that Jesus Christ gave to that church was for them to be faithful to the death because they were experiencing great persecution. As a matter of fact, when you look at the, the period of time from 200 to 325 AD in church history, thousands upon thousands of believers in Christ that believe the exact same thing that you believe were martyred for their faith. And, and, and so there was no correction because I believe, personally, their life wasn't lived out fully. They experienced persecution. They, they experienced martyrdom. And this morning, we're going to study the church at Pergamos, or at least introduce the church at Pergamos. And it represents for us the, the period of church history from 325 to 500 AD. But also, this is a literal historical place where there was a church. And so there's a basic outline that Christ gives us for each of these churches. What he does is he introduces the churches. There's five things that we see. He introduces the church. Then Christ reveals something about himself that that church needs to learn, that, that they need to cling to, to overcome. Then he gives them a commendation. In other words, he, he really says, hey, I know what you're doing, and this is what you're doing well. And then there's always, almost always, a correction here's what you're not doing well, and here's what you need to repent from, and then there's always a challenge. And so that basic outline is the outline we're following for every church, all seven churches. This morning, we'll start in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12. Let's read the text together. It'll be on the screen, or you can look it on uh, in your Bible. The Bible says in verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write, these things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak 
to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to thee quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saying, He that receiveth it. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. God, we thank you uh, for Vicki. We thank you for her testimony. We thank you for your grace in her life. God, not only the physical healing that you gave her uh, with cancer, God, what a tremendous work of you. We give you glory for that. But God, the, the spiritual healing you gave her at salvation is greater. It's greater that she carried her sin to you, and you said, I'll, I'll take that. I'll wash it. I'll make it clean. I'll make you a new creature in me. God, the greater miracle is the gift of salvation that you give us through Jesus Christ, and we're thankful for that. We're thankful for her testimony. Thank you for her obedience to walk with you. Lord, bless us as we study, God. We, we need to, to, to hear from you today. God, would you feed your church through your word, and we'll give you the glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the first thing we're going to look at this morning is the church at Pergamos, and, and we will not exhaust all of this today, so this is really part one of three this morning, but we're going to talk about Pergamos because this, this letter is addressed to a church that is in Pergamos, and historically, this was a prominent city in Asia Minor. If you know where Turkey is, uh, it, it's, it's kind of on the, the western uh, coast of Turkey, and it was a key Roman city. And, and as we get into this study over the next couple of weeks, you're going to see the connection between Rome and what God is saying specifically concerning Satan's seat in this city. Because under Augustus, the first Roman emperor, this emperor named the, the city of Pergamos a neocoret. I say, excuse you, a, a neocoret. And, and what that means is it was a special city. It had a special ranking amongst all the Roman cities because in this city, they had built temples to the emperors. And, and so when you show the emperor's favor and you idolize the emperors, well, they take note and they, they say, well, that's a key city in the Roman Empire. And so Augustus called the city of Pergamos uh, a neocrate. Uh, it was one of the key cities. As a matter of fact, one of their own historians named Pliny the Elder. What a horrible name. He was an author. He was a naturalist. He was a philosopher. He referred to the city of Pergamos as one of the most important cities in the entire province. Under further emperors, they, they began to redesign and remodel this city. They had a new construction program. Uh, listen, it, it received a second recognition as a, a city of influence from, from the rulership. It even raised, was raised to the rank of a metropolis, metropolis in 123 AD. It even exceeded the cities of Smyrna and Ephesus, which we've already studied. And so this city is beginning to gain popularity in the Roman government. They had massive building programs. They built massive temples. They built a stadium, a theater, a huge forum, an amphitheater. They had about 200,000 people. Sounds a lot like Huntsville, quite honestly, right? I mean, we're building stuff left and right, man. And, and what's interesting is in this city, there was a shrine to the Roman god of healing or the Greek god of healing named Asclepius, again, Gesundheit. And, 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 so, and so this Greek god of healing was worshipped there. Everybody knows, or most people know, if you're familiar with medical, uh, the man Hippocrates, one of the greatest uh, you know, 
physicians or medical students of all time. Well, the second guy to Hippocrates was, was a guy named Galen. And Galen resided in Pergamos. And this, this city was focused on healing, and they had these, these healing spas that people could come to, and they, they kind of put them in a daze, and apparently this God would visit them as they were kind of disoriented and tell them what to do to get the healing that they needed, whether physically, mentally, or emotionally. And so, and so this, this city had a very well-known, world-renowned healthcare system. They had great medical, so to speak. Even, even this God that they, they worshipped, this, this pagan God, was said to have been such a skilled doctor that he could even raise people from the dead. Well, who did he rob that from? I mean, give me a break. Yeah, Jesus Christ. I mean, I mean, he's stealing God's glory. His image is portrayed by a snake wrapped around a staff. And some of us in the medical field, I spent 20 years in the field of physical therapy. That's a, that's a very common symbol for the American Medical Association, as well as many other medical logos. You have a, a, a snake wrapped around a stick. And everybody wants to go back to, to Moses and maybe the brazen serpent, but really it goes back to Roman idolatry, Roman paganism. And, 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 so, and so what's interesting is this is a key city in which there's a church. And God has some very specific things to say about this church. And, and what we're seeing not only is a history of, of the church through these seven churches, but we're also seeing the history of how Satan developed his strategy against the church. And so let me just give you a few blanks, because as we get to, to Pergamos, Satan has been attacking the church full on for 300 years. He's been martyring the saints, and the more he kills the saints, the more the church grows. As a matter of fact, it's been said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and the more, that, the more blood that has been shed historically for those that believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the greater the gospel reached into the world, and the more fruit it had. And so after 300 years, Satan begins to change his tactic. Instead of being a roaring lion, he, he presents himself now as an angel of light. And let me show you the pattern because you've already got the notes. In, in Ephesus, we saw that there were people that were false apostles. And God called those false, false apostles out. He called them liars. You say that you're an apostle, but you're not. And, and, and we spent a whole message on that. And I don't want to re-preach re that. But when we got to the church at Smyrna, we also saw that Satan now had established a synagogue. There were people that were identified from Christ as being part of the synagogue of Satan. That's very interesting. A synagogue is a religious system. And now when we get to Pergamos, we're going to find that Satan actually has a seat, which is a political system. It's a throne. It's a position of authority or a seat of authority. And, and again, just as we're studying church history, we need to take note of how the devil is working against the church. Because what we're going to see in Pergamos is now Satan has a seat. He has a political and a religious system, ultimately, that's going to be established that will be against the church of Jesus Christ. And so that's a little bit of the history about Pergamos. And then let's pick it up in verse 12. And we're going to learn about Christ and what this church needed to know about Christ, it says, These things saith he, which hath the sharp sword with two edges. And if you skip down to verse 16 in the same text, it says, Repent, or else I will come to thee quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Each time Christ reveals himself to one of these churches, 
It's something specific that that church needs to overcome. And so Christ reveals himself as one having a sharp sword with two edges. Well, most of you that have read the Bible or studied the Bible, you know what that sword is. And here's the key in your notes. The sword of God is the word of God. And we know that from Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, because the Bible says that the word of God is quick, and that doesn't mean fast, that means alive, it's, it's alive, it's living. The word of God is quick, it's powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. You know, God's word is able to cut so deep, it's greater than any surgeon's knife ever created. Because it can go past the joints in the marrow, through, past the skin. It can actually divide soul and spirit. And it even says that the Word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And if you've ever sat under biblical preaching, you know what that verse means. It's like, man, that preacher don't even know me, but he's reading my mail. How did he do that? Well, he didn't do it. But the Word of God did. The Word of God knew that this is what I needed to hear, and he's able to discern my thoughts, and my intentions. Revelation 1 and verse 16, uh, concerning Christ, it says he had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword. Psalm 55 and verse 21, concerning God, it says the words of his mouth were smoother than butter. And man, that's how the word of God is. It's butter. But war, listen, was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, Yet they were drawn swords. Like God's word, man, it's certainly smooth, right? And it provides healing and it gives grace and there's comfort. But man, it can cut. And, and as it relates to what's happening in Pergamos, Christ wants that church to know, hey, listen, I got the sharp sword. I got the sharp sword that has two edges. Christ has the word of God. And because Christ has the word of God, he wants you and I to have the word of God Psalm 149 and verse 6 says, let the high praises of God be in their mouth. This is talking about the saints and a two-edged sword in their hand. God wants you as a Christian to have the word of God. God's giving you that gift because you're going to need that to overcome some things. You're going to need that to overcome an enemy who has a seat of authority, who has a throne. The only way you can discern what's happening in this world, listen, the only way as a Christian you can understand what's happening in this world is through the sword of the Word of God. And that's the only way you're going to be victorious in this life because there is a real adversary that is attacking the church of Jesus Christ and the saints therein. Okay, and then number three, I know you're saying, man, we're getting through this fast. We're about, to, we're about to slow down. Don't worry. Number three, we're going to see the commendation. And so the Lord looks at this church and he says, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is, and thou holdest fast my name. And has not denied my faith in those days when Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. Okay, there's a couple of things we want to take away from here. Number one, Christ knows this church's labor. This was a laboring church. He says, I know thy works. And, and we've talked about how that in previous sessions, every single church that Jesus Christ address, addresses, he begins with this statement, I know thy works. He already knows the works of his church, whether good or bad. And because we as individuals make up the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, Christ already knows our works, 
whether good or bad. He already knows. And again, we, we can fool our spouse, we can fool our pastor, we can fool our discipler, but we can't fool Christ. And Christ knows if we're really serious about the labor that he's called us to, to labor in the Lord, to get the gospel to the world and make disciples. Number two, he commends this church because of their location. Because he says, I know not only your work, but I know where you dwellest. Listen to this. Even where Satan's seat is. Now, you're talking about a, a tough mission field. You know, when we, when we studied the church of Ephesus, the very first church, we, we ran the history of, of Ephesus through the book of Acts, and we remembered and, and recalled that, that Ephesus was a pagan city, man. It, it worshipped uh, this, this, this goddess called Diana. There was a temple in that city. As a matter of fact, the entire economy of that city was rooted in pagan worship and idolatry and selling shrines and all these different things. And listen, can you imagine what Paul went through when he went into Ephesus and preached the gospel and planted a church there? And that was just a goddess. That was just a pagan god. But now we get to, to Pergamos, and Christ says of, of, of Pergamos, listen, I know where you dwell, where Satan's seat is. I mean, you talk about a hard mission field. Ephesus didn't hold a candle to Pergamos because Satan's seat was at Pergamos, and yet there was a church there. Man, we have a great city, but man, we got, we got some spiritual needs in this city. Can I just tell you that? And we got a lot of churches in this city, but we need to be reminded that, man, the devil sets up shop in key places and in key cities, and that's no excuse for us not to do what God's called us to do. We, we have been called to continue to labor, even in the hardest of fields. And no offense, there are some tough nuts to crack in Huntsville, Alabama. And you say, why is that? Well, we have everything we need. We got good medical. We got a good economy. We got good jobs. It really, we don't really follow the national flow of things. We're, we're kind of always good here. And so we actually have, I believe, a lot of idolatry in this city because, man, we got health, wealth, and prosperity. What is the need for Christ? Well, the need for Christ is not just your physical healing. It's, it's your spiritual soul for eternity. And one day, all the, the blessings of this life will, will fade and end and then eternity. And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a guy from L.A., for those of you maybe newer to the room. You say Los Angeles? No, Lower Alabama is where I'm from. I'm from L.A., Lower Alabama, and uh, and my dad was in the military. We moved to North Alabama my junior year of high school, and uh, I wasn't a Christian. I got saved in college. Uh, a friend of mine that I played basketball with shared the gospel with me. I received Christ at the age of 21, and uh, and finished college. Majored in physical therapy. Worked in the field of physical therapy for about 20 years. Uh, most of that time was actually here in Huntsville. And so I've been around this culture in this city a long time, uh, comparatively speaking. I know some of you have lived here and have extended generations here. Uh, but for me, I, I'm a student of culture and I'm a student of people. And, and part of that probably is from physical therapy. But, man, there's just observations. It's really hard to have people come to a realization that they have a need for a Savior. Because they don't have really any other need in this city. As a matter of fact, it's a struggle on Sunday afternoon to figure out where you're going to go eat lunch. You know what I'm saying? Because, now thankfully, y'all packed a lunch today. You're not expecting lunch. So I'm glad you're going to stay. But listen, 
I mean, you got so many things to choose. There's just no needs until something comes across the plate that we can't handle. That causes us to drop on our knees and say, oh God, oh God, will you help me? Man, when we talk about Pergamos, we need to realize, man, the devil sets up shop in key cities. And as we'll see in just a second, he even does religious things to keep people snared and trapped. And the truth is they need freedom in Christ. So Christ commends this church for their labor. He commends them because of their location, because he said, man, that's a difficult place. Number three, he commends them because they were loyal. Because he says to the church at Pergamos, thou holdest fast my name. And can I just tell you, that's an amazing testimony to this church. I mean, listen, when you study the Bible and you study Christ's name, well, there's lots of things that we can learn and take away. Number one, here's this key. Christ's name is above every name in this world. It, it is a name that's above all names. And this church held that name. Philippians 2 verse 9 says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Man, what a name. And this church held that name. And we need to know, secondly, that Christ's name is the only name for salvation. We just heard about that. I mean, Ms. Vicki shared that testimony. At 18, I know Christ as my Lord and Savior. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And listen, you ought to be able to recall a time in your life where you realized that you were a sinner separated from God and there was only one name through which you could come to, to God in, and that was Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross, because that is the only name under heaven given among men that we can be saved by. And then number three, Christ's name is so powerful, it's worth suffering for. And, and when you read the early part of the book of Acts, listen, there were apostles disciples that went out and just shared the gospel like we're com commissioned to do. And when they did it, they faced persecution. They had people tell them, stop teaching in this name. You filled this city with your doctrine. And those apostles responded and, and said, uh, we can't stop talking about this name. So you can beat us all you want. You can, you can throw us in jail. You can do whatever you want, but we got to obey God rather than man. This is a powerful name, and this church is commended for holding fast his name. But, as commendable as that was, as we're going to see it this week and next week, that wasn't good enough for this church. And, and listen, this morning there are churches all over this city and all over this country holding church in the name of Jesus, and they should. And they're gathering in the name of Christ, and they should. And they're suffering for the name of Christ, and they should, and they're holding on to his name, and they should, but there's something that they should hold that's even greater than that. And you say, what could be greater than the name of Jesus Christ? I'm glad you asked. Psalm 138 and verse 2 tells us, look what it says. The word of God says, I will worship toward thy holy temple. I will praise thy name for all thy loving kindness and for thy truth, and amen and amen. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. 
And I want you to understand this morning that, that as, a, as, as powerful, as an important as Christ's name is, God magnifies his word above his own name. Because if we don't have the word of God, we don't know the name of God. Does that make sense? It's the word of God. It's the scripture that reveal Christ's name. And so get that key in your note. God himself magnified his word above his name. And, and, and let me give you a warning as commendable as it is to hold the name of Christ, and we should. God never commanded us to hold his name, but rather God commanded us to hold his word. He commanded us to hold his word, and by the way, his name is in his word. Does that, does that make sense? Don't think I'm making you choose between his name or his word. You don't know the name of Christ without the word of God. And so God has commanded us clearly in Scripture to hold something. In this church, man, God commended them for holding faithful to his name. But we're going to see something they weren't holding on to, and it, it, and it allowed false doctrine to creep into their church. And what they didn't hold on to was his word. So here's some key principles. Get this in your notes. First key is this. God's word is the word of life. And God says we're to hold on to that word. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 16 says, holding forth the word of life. What are we supposed to do with the word of life? We're to hold it forth, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I've not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Paul says, listen, I'm holding fast to the word of life. And when you start holding on to God's words, you have life. You say, well, I have life in his name. You absolutely do have life in his name, but you need to hold on to his words. John chapter 6 and verse 63 say this, says this, It's the spirit that quickeneth. Christ said these words, The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak to you, the words, they are spirit and they are life. And can I just tell you, listen, if you want life in your Christian walk with the Lord, it's in the word of God. You say, well, I'm a Christian. It's, 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 it's Christ, man. I'm all about Jesus. I'm, all, I'm gathering around Jesus' name. I'm, I'm worshiping Jesus. Amen. I'm with you. But life is in his words. And when we don't have life as a Christian, man, when we have death all around us, we have death in our ministry, we have death in our relationships, we have death in our parenting, we have death in our mental health and our spiritual health and our emotional health. The reason that we have it is because the word of God has life and we've stopped holding it. We've stopped holding forth the word of life. And this church, man, they held Christ's name. And I think a lot of Christians do, man. They're like, yeah, I'm all about Jesus. I'm saved. Well, do you have life? Do you have it practically? Can you take the principles of God's word and lay them over the course of your life so that every decision, every way, every manner of life comes from this book? Well, if the answer to that is no, you probably don't have life in areas in your life. There's probably some death that's crept in. There's probably some, some things that have fallen away. And the reason why, listen, God didn't fail you. You failed the word of God. That book, I, I, love, I love people, listen, as a pastor, you know, we have the privilege of counseling people, and, and it is a privilege. And man, anytime I can share the word of God with somebody, I want to share the word of God. But I've had people sit across my desk or sit across coffee from me. That's usually better if there's coffee involved. We'll, we'll sit across, co across coffee, and they'll tell me, man, I tried what that said. It didn't work. Well, the problem is you didn't hold on to it. 
God's word works. They are the words of, I cannot stand people to tell me that God is a liar. Well, that just didn't work. Well, I, I applied those principles one time to my financial state, and it didn't get better. Oh, you did it one time? I bet you read the Bible one time, too. And all of a sudden, everything didn't get completely transforming your life. You read, it, you read one chapter, and you didn't get the healing that you needed? Are we okay this morning? You see, you see, when we don't hold what God's told us to hold, we wonder why our life falls apart. The Word of God is the Word of life. And it's for this life, and it's for the life to come. Number two, God's words are sound words. And God says we're to hold those sound words. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13 says, Hold fast the form of sound words, which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. That word sound means sure. It means free from error. It means wholesome words, healthy words. Well, those are the words that God's called me to hold. And if I'm not holding those words, then whatever I am holding is probably unhealthy, unholy, and full of error. God says, I'm making my word available to you. It's what, it's what is going to give you victory in the battle. Number three, God's word is the faithful word. And, and oh, emphasis on the faithful word. And shout out to my, my brother that's now in heaven, Pastor Mark Trotter. Huge Ohio State fan and would always root for the Ohio State University. And apparently we got a foreigner that somehow crept in the building. So I'm going to stand on this side of the stage now, but <laughs> emphasis on the, it is the Ohio State, right? And God wants you to know that his word is not a faithful word. Listen, it's the faithful word. Titus chapter one, verse nine, Paul writes to Titus, he says, holding fast, listen, the faithful word as he's been taught that he might be able by sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. There's this, this guy in the Old Testament. I love Old Testament pictures, typology. When you, when you study this thing in the Old Testament about cleaving to, to the sword of God's word, there's a guy named Eleazar. He was one of David's mighty men. And in 2 Samuel 23, verses 9 to 10, God gives us a story about this man named Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahoite. Okay, yeah. <laughs> At least one of those names is really cool, Eleazar, right? He, he's one of three mighty men with David. And, and listen, when they defiled the Philistines, they were gathered to, together to, bat, to battle. The men of Israel were gone away. I mean, David and his mighty men were called to stand. And listen, all the men of Israel went away. They fled because of the battle. The Bible says that he arose, Eleazar arose, and he smote the Philistines until his hand was weary. Listen, and his hand Clave unto the sword. And the Lord wrought a great victory that day. And the people returned after him only to spoil. You see, that's the Old Testament picture of how God wants us to live. God wants us to hold that sword so tight. And listen, I know that the battle is hard. I know it's hard. It's real. It's hard. But God says, I've given you something. It's a two-edged sword. And listen, you, you need to hold fast to that and cleave to that because there's enemies that are going to attack. And when nobody else will stand and fight, you have to stand and fight. And listen, if you'll just stand and hold the sword, 
God's the one that gives you the victory. God's the one that gives you the victory. And, and God wants us to just remember. He wanted Pergamos to know, I've got what you need. I've got a two-edged sword. You're right where Satan dwells. We'll get into it next week, man. There's false doctrine that's whacked out. What you need is a sword. What we need is a sword. Let's hold his name. Man, let's get in that book. Let's learn that book. Let's cling to the promises of that book. Let's have book, chapter, and verse of why we do what we do. And if God said it, let's just trust it and obey it. It doesn't have to make sense. Well, I don't understand why God would have me do it that way. Just do it anyways. Just trust the Lord. You don't have to understand it because he's God and you're not. Amen? He's God and, and I'm not. Listen, it's hard for all of us. I'm just wanting to encourage you, man. Listen, God's given us what we need through his word. His word is enough. And then lastly, the Lord commends this church because of their longevity, their longevity. Because listen, they faced real battles. Look at, look at back at the text. It says, listen, he says, listen, you held my name even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. And, and, and what he does is he calls this man's name to attention, this, this, this martyr named Antipas. And if you take his name and just kind of cross-reference it, it doesn't show up anywhere else in the scripture, but his name, as many of you know, when you, you get a name in the Bible, usually there's a, a definition or meaning of his name. And, and that name Antipas literally means or is translated like the father. And so this man was slain. And, and listen, can you imagine any death in any body of believers? And, and we've seen it the last two years, by the way. Every church has experienced pain and difficulty and loss of believers. Listen, that would have been an easy excuse for the Christians at Pergamos to deny the faith and say, you know what, I'm going to disengage from the battle. I'm just going to save my own life. It's just too hard to go forth today. I'm not going to go into the battle today. I'm not going to do what God's called me to do. By the way, Satan lives here. I mean, God, what do you expect, you know? Yet even in the midst of adversity, this, this church didn't deny Christ's faith, even when they lost one of their own. Antipas is in the Bible three reasons. Number one, he's in the Bible because he was faithful. He was faithful. That's a challenge to me. I hope it's a challenge to you. Would you have that testimony? Would God have that testimony of you? Are you faithful? Are you full of faith, even to the point of death? Number two, he's in the Bible because he was a martyr. He, he gave his life, completely surrendered to God's will and God's plan for his life. And number three, he's in the Bible because he was among his brethren. And I think that's a, a key point that we need to take away. You know, it, it does tell us in that verse that Antipas was slain among you. I don't know how that shook out because God doesn't give us a lot of insight into what happened. But I know he uses the phrase among you. And, and could it be that like, man, like literally something happened like during a corporate gathering where this guy mar was martyred? I mean, and, and you would think, well, man, that's, how could that ever happen? Well, Christians all over the world face that. There's, there's people that meet literally at the risk of their life right now. Well, if they're on the other side of the planet, they've already met. But, but they've met risking literally their life just to corporately gather together. And, and I just think it's important to realize that God called Antipas out and, and, and forever recorded in the Word of God that he was among his brethren when he died. 
Do you have that testimony? Are you among your brethren? And I think God is painting a picture there. Again, I think that represents kind of the corporate assembling of believers, which has really been a challenge the last two years, hasn't it? I mean, it's been a challenge. And I don't know the circumstances, but what I do know is this man was taken out by the enemy while he was with his church family because he was among them. There's something about the corporate gathering. There's just something about it. I think it's, it's one of the things that we as churches have faced the last two years that the devil has absolutely come against because he knows if he can divide us and, and separate us, we will become ineffective. Let me just encourage you that there is value in being with a corporate body of believers. James chapter 5 and verse 14 says this, Is there any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let him pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. You know, it's, it's hard to pray for people when we don't know they're here, we don't know their needs. It's hard for leadership to pray when we don't know what's going on. It's hard for people to pray when you sit at home and watch without getting off the couch. And again, man, if you're on vacation or work trip, understandable for sure. But, but it's hard and you disconnect from the body when you're not among the body of believers. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2 tells us that those that are among us are the ones that get fed. It says, feed the flock of God, which is among you. Well, that's hard to do if you're not here or in your respective churches. It's hard to do. And so listen, God, God wants to just right at the end remind us of this man that had a commitment to his local church. And listen, that church continued to assemble despite the threat of persecution and even despite the threat of death. And we've seen it for two years. And listen, we still have churches that aren't meeting. And I guess it's because of COVID, but I really believe the devil has just got them blinded to the value of corporate ministry. And we got Christians who still aren't back in their church. And I, I'm sensitive, man. We've all lost people. But you're not going to escape that no matter what. And so, and so God is just reminding us, listen, be in it for the long haul. Don't let something even as significant as the loss of one of your own, who, by the way, Satan took out, discourage you from being faithful. So what, we can, what can we learn from Pergamos in closing? You can close your Bibles. Just a couple of questions, we're done. What can we learn? What can we apply from what we've learned from Pergamos this morning? Three, three things I think that are kind of key takeaways. Number one, even in the same city as Satan's seat, we can be faithful. Now, I'm not saying Satan has a seat in Huntsville. I sure hope not. That's an uphill battle. But we have spiritual opposition. We, we face spiritual battles every day. And listen, we need to be faithful. Even when we've seen perse persecution, even in the midst of our corporate assembly, we need to be faithful to the Lord, just like Pergamos. Number two, we need to realize that we don't need to just hold Christ's name but we need to learn to hold his word. And, and let me just say it like this. What's in your hand also determines what's not in your hand. You see, you can't hold God's word and with the same hand hold on to this world. You can't hold God's, world, God's word and hold into, you know, science falsely so-called. You've got to make a choice of what you're really going to hold on to. 
And I believe God would have us hold the two-edged sword. What kind of grip do you have on God's word? Because the enemy is real and the battle is coming. It already has been here this morning, by the way, before you got here. Will you be able to stand like Eleazar? And when no one else is around and the pastors aren't around to ask your questions, listen, will you be able to hold God's word and stand? And if the answer to that is no, then you need to to grow. You need to get discipled. You need to get faithful to church and get fed so that you can wield the sword of the word of God. Last, Last takeaway, I think, is that man named Anubis. He's a faithful man, a faithful martyr. He's just like his father. Are we? Are we just like our Father? Because that's what God's called us to. That's what God's called us to. Amen. Let's pray and then we'll dismiss.